I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is Tony Wong. Who is Tony Wong? He's often referred to as the godfather of Hong Kong comics. He's published over 900 issues of his well-known book, Oriental Heroes. He started multiple publishing companies and risen through the manhwa industry to the heights of fame and fortune. He's also a mobster who, at one point, controlled 90% of Hong Kong's manhwa business. Build your own legacy by any means necessary. Born Wong Jan Lung in Hong Kong in 1950, Wong Yuk Long, aka Tony Wong for his English language work, was a boy who grew up loving comics and manhwa, the Chinese term for comics. Like many children, he made comics as a kid, but you know, just more than your mom put on your fridge kind of comics. He made comics. He made his debut in Epoch Comic Weekly at the ripe old age of 13. All throughout his teens, he was published by publications such as the Chinese Student Weekly Reunion and Young Park. At age 17... Youth Park? Youth Park. It was Youth Park. I can read. At age, I believe you. I, thank you. Um, at age 17, he started his first publishing company, Jade Man, because he wanted more control over the creation of his publication and his work. In 1969, at the age of 19, Wong found his breakout book called Little Rascals. The direct translation of this book is actually like little degenerates but for some reason over here we just call it little rascals i don't know is was it just easier to do shit back then or is he just a million times smarter than i was when i was 19 no man his parents were rich i guarantee you his parents were rich and they just paid people to do things for him yeah i guarantee you like he, he didn't do any of this we're spoiling it now but like there's no way that he did all, all the stuff that is credited to him over the course of this episode there's just you just don't do when you're 13. Like, you look at those drawings and they're just... Obviously, the manhwa system, much like manga, has a lot of assistants that work with the artists. Um, but specifically with him, like, they're just... There's just no way. Um, when it's, you know... The the legend of Tony Wong is that he, at, at age 17, started a publishing company. Nah, dude. His dad was... And I've tried to figure this out, but there's not a whole lot of English language stuff about his past. Um, probably because he's just not well known over here but like his dad was uh you know a real estate magnate or mob connected or some sort of businessman-y tycoon guy who was like sure son i'll buy you a comic book <coughs> publishing company it's interesting how the uh the cultural cachet of uh chinese comics and or any other type any other foreign type of comic just never resonated in the same way that manga did yeah i mean and we'll we will definitely get to that later when we examine jade man in america because they did come over here um but I, I wish that we had a way of showing these images that i put into the script because at this point in time you know when tony wong was in his you know 20s he was really obsessed with um osamu tezuka and shotaro ishinomori and his drawings are interesting because there are like there are elements of both of those guys and then there's also this kind of like bizarre rendering thing that's happening where they're kind of chibi big-headed martial arts comics 
where they have, you know, kind of stereotypical Osamu Tezuka uh, eyes, but their abs are just like rendered to fuck and like super rippling. And like, they're always like very, very muscular in a style that is not necessarily congruous with the rest of the drawing. And it's mostly like, like if you look at the cover (laughs) that's in the script for issue 337, those faces are drawn by one person and those bodies are drawn by another. Yeah. Like blatantly. Um, it's a really, it's a real weird, it's a weird visual sensation. Cause like, yeah, the, the head is slightly too large for the body. The face is just a completely different style. Not that the body is like super detailed, but it's just, it's just totally different. Which is kind of what I love about his comics. Like, I mean, obviously that saying they're his comics is a bit of a misnomer, but I really love the way that it all, all those pieces fit together. And I mean, it might not be necessarily super prevalent or apparent to somebody who doesn't have a background in illustration, um, but it's just the, the kind of like dissonant frequencies that are happening in these drawings is really cool to me. Like they look like weird bootleg adaptations of something else, even yeah. though they're not like... This looks like there's a Japanese TV show called The Little Rascals, and these are like the weird Hong Kong or Malaysian like bootleg comics that got made illegally. Yeah, look, it's like it looks like just a kind of like a weird mashup of like Astro Boy and then like Devil Man, and mm-hmm, it's, it's mm-hmm. like it's just like a- very Devil Man, very Gona guy, but also with like a more like a better understanding of anatomy because Gona guy. So if if the listeners don't know, Osamu Tezuka is like. He's literally called the god of manga. He basically invented the form. He established many of the storytelling tropes, invented the visual language of how the Japanese create comics, most well known for a book called um, Astro Boy, which is about a small robot boy, um, which is a really dark story when you really think about it because it's about a, a scientist whose son dies and then he turns his son into a robot, which is like really dark. Yeah. But it's kind of played like. Astro Boy. I'm not actually your son. He's dead. Yeah. He'll never come back. He'll never come back. I'm just a poor facsimile. <laughs> so that guy basically established all of the, he set up the industry more or less. Like he's, you know, he's the Walt Disney or the Jack Kirby or whoever you want to make in the West. But there really isn't a perfect analogy in the West. Like it's hard to overstate Osamu Tezuka's impact into Japanese comics. Um, his assistant or one of his assistants Shotaro Ishinomori is the guy who created Cyborg 009, Kakaida, Inazuman, Super Sentai, all the kind of like robot characters that henshin into a bug. That dude. Was he uh, was he involved with the the Cyborg 009 anime? Mhm. Cuz cuz that The first one, the first one. The first one yeah, cuz the the anime is one of the uh, I was going to say this jokingly, but then I realized like it's actually relevant but uh the the first cyborg 009 anime and then like the reboot like 2000s one that was kind of like a throwback to yeah. it they have like a similar go nagai types or not go nagai um like an, yeah they have Ishimori, like yeah. yeah they have like a similar style and yeah. uh you know um obviously as influential as he was to anime in general like anime kind of like evolved away from that specific style so watching the cyborg 009 like reboot show on adult swim in the 90s was like or not 90s like the like the early 2000s was 
you know, it was very uniquely, it looked a lot, it, it, uh, it had a unique visual look from a lot of the other anime. It had a similar thing of like, yeah, this is anime, but there's something different about this. And then uh, watching that movie Metropolis. Yeah. Uh, Which, it, that's, Metropolis is based on uh, a Shitaro Ishinomori manga. Yeah. So watching those and just being like, what is like, the, this just looks different than all other anime, and then and yeah, then the, kind of the, learning learning the the lineage behind it. Yeah, the the kind of visual tropes of Ishinomori are like very distinctive silhouettes, large feet. He loved he loved to do like thin thighs up to the knee, and then like bell bottom shaped feet, regardless of if the character actually was wearing bell bottoms. And those um, big noses, huge noses, both pointy and bulbous and round. Um, he also loved um, very distinctive hair silhouettes. Um, you know, a lot of characters that have spiky hair, a lot of characters that have like swoopy bangs. Um, and so his assistant, one of his main assistants was Go Nagai. And Go Nagai is the creator of Devilman and Mazinger and a bunch of kind of like hardcore anime and manga. And I, I love Devilman. Um, but the story behind Devilman is that uh, Go Nagai was debating leaving... Uh, or at least this is my understanding of the story. Some of these things are a little hard to parse over here in the West because you get like conflicting stories based on conflicting translations and or people that kind of like half remember things from like translated DVD commentaries. But the story I've always heard about Devilman is that he was created because Shitaro Ishinomori was, um, or Gonagai was thinking about leaving Shitaro Ishinomori as an assistant and going out on his own and trying to make his own manga. And he got really sick. He got dysentery. And he almost shit himself to death. And as he was shitting himself to death, he was he started writing Devil Man, which is why the beginning of Devil Man is politely a mess. Like it doesn't really make any sense. Um, it's very weirdly paced. Stuff happens off camera that characters then talk about that like is stuff you need to see. Um, yeah, but it but suffice it to say, Devil Man is is fucking great. And it's kind of that. Uh, it's kind of a darker it's kind of a darker twisted kind of like not your daddy's manga version of common writer mm-hmm. so there's you know superhero but there's boobs and gore and like going a guy loves people punching each other in half and blood spraying spraying everywhere so all of those visual tropes from japan are on display in uh, in Tony Wong's comics, specifically the early stuff, though, of Shitaro Ishinomori and uh, Tezuka, um, uh, partly because that's what he had access to at the time and also just because of how prevalent those two guys were. Tony Wong's Little Rascals is a series that follows two brothers, Tiger Wong and Dragon Wong, two long-lost half-brothers who reunite to take up the reins over their dead father's martial arts dojo. Tiger is the main character, uh, and he has these... He's the one that looks basically just like an Astro Boy drawing. He has like black hair, giant eyebrows that seem to be always frowning, even when he's smiling, a very cherubic face, um, and is kind of the um, the protagonist of the book. Um, and then Dragon Wong is My the- My favorite character was Buckwheat. Isn't he the one that died penniless and alone? Or no, no. Buckwheat did, he like worked, he like, they found him like 30 or 40 years after the show had ended and he was like a film tech or something. Did they? I feel like I feel like he had he had a rough life, I but thought, I feel like yeah, I he got he it had, together. I thought he had died. Oh, he definitely died. But I mean, I f- there are a couple of them I feel like had really dark stories. And I I want to say Buckwheat 
Other than, oh no, because Buckwheat, I feel like his parents stole all his money. Yeah, I thought I thought I was I, I was under the impression, or I uh, I remember it as like he's the one that had like the really dark I think, story. I think you're I think you're right. R.I.P. Buckwheat, pour one out for the Buckwheat. Uh, so the half brother, the other half brother, um, Dragon Wong, uh, has blonde hair and is basically the same goddamn character, but he has a scar on his face, um, which is an easy way of being like, I can only draw one character. Got to be able to tell them apart. Fuck it. I'll, I'll put a scar on this one. The two. Why is he George Lucas? Oh, yeah. 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 I just, uh, yeah, I just, I just put a scar on his face. Yeah. Yeah. It's like poetry. It's like poetry. It rhymes. It rhymes. It rhymes. Yeah. Just, uh, they're the same visual character, but like different. So, uh, they, they have a mutual friend named Golden Dragon. So to recap, Tiger Wong, Dragon Wong, Golden Dragon. What if... What if your name was Dave Baker and then my name was just Baker Price? <laughs> and we had like a goofy sidekick who like came in here with like, uh, you know, a, a soundboard and his name was Price is Right. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Um, it's funny, too, because like his comedic shtick, like Golden Dragon's thing is like the other two characters are fairly serious. They kind of, you know, they have problems of the week of there's a gang that comes into their little dojo area the neighborhood and they have to clean it up or there's a you know they gotta fight this guy or there's a criminal warlord who's doing this stuff over here and the the brothers and their friends have to like team up to take them out but every time that there's comedic relief in one of these strips golden dragon just like looks to camera and crosses his eyes like that's just how all the jokes are where it's just like somebody falls and they, they, like, are just laying on the ground, and then Golden Dragon just, like, looks to camera and crosses his eyes. So he's basically the, the, the Paul Lind of Little he, Rascals. Yes, he is the Paul Lind of Little Rascals, which I should love him more, but I don't really because he's not Paul Lind, and I love actual Paul Lind. I wish he was just actually the character in the comic. Me too. Like it was just exactly the way it was, but their friend was Paul Lind. <laughs> yeah, me too. We've got a... Protect the dojo. We've got to protect the dojo. (laughs) Tiger, dragon. Tiger, more like meow. (laughs) (laughs) Those jokes are going nowhere. No one that is listening to a podcast about a manhwa mobster gives two shits about the the obscure 70s closeted comedian that is Paul Lind. But now you know, for context, Paul Lind was a gay comedian in the 1970s who had an alcohol problem and very laconic comedic style. And a very distinctive way of speaking. Uh, It's also worth noting that the artwork for this initial kind of era, the like very bootleggy underground looking era of little rascals is super violent i mean like hyper violent yeah this i mean it's 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 the artwork is at least the cover artwork is kind of funny to me because it looks funny in a way of like it looks like just like a 13 year old's doodles on Mm -hmm. like their notebook Mm -hmm. of just like there's no real continuity or logic to this drawing other than just like I just made them do really cool badass shit. So you have like when you when you're when you're a kid and you and your friends are like drawing, it's always like a picture of somebody just like with a giant fucking knife, like 
stabbing through somebody's face or something like that. And, and that's like that's just what these drawings are. And they're literally that too. Like Andrew's not joking. Like the cover that we're looking at right now is Tiger Wong stabbing a grown he's pulling a grown man over his head while doing like a lunge and the man is arcing through the air and Tiger is stabbing him through the spine and the intestines and blood is spraying everywhere and there's blood coming out of Tiger's mouth and also a massive slash across Tiger's chest which is bleeding it's so good yeah i can't overstate how rad these are i love this so much and i mean the the covers like they i mean i haven't really read these so I, maybe i maybe there's something to them that i don't know about but like some of these covers just really to the to the extreme have that like lack of continuity or logic because some of them are just like people just like murdering the main characters. Like there's like covers where it's like a little girl is like stabbing him through the fucking heart. Yeah. It's like, does that happen in the comic? Yeah. It's like, he's fucking, you die from this. And to answer your question, I have no idea because I've never been able to get my hands on any of these original era, um, uh, Little Rascals comics. I've read the later stuff, the Oriental, because eventually it, it gets renamed a couple times. Um, and I've read the stuff that's from the Oriental Heroes era, but I've never read any of the Little Rascals era stuff because it's really hard to get your hands on here in America. Um, and as we've, as we've as we've briefly discussed, like there's just no way that a 17-year-old did all this by himself. There's a pretty drastic arc throughout the life of the 900 issues that are published of... Uh, of Little Rascals slash Oriental Heroes slash Dragon Tiger Gate, which is eventually what it's retitled. Um, And its initial stylistic stuff, like we're saying, is this Tezuka-influenced works. And then the stuff from the 80s, um, which when it it gets renamed Oriental Heroes, is much more kind of of the time. It looks like the the first story arc of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Yeah, totally, yeah. Um, lots of cross hatching, which was out around at the same time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Around, you know, lots of cross hatching, lots of emphasis on in air quotes detail, even if it's not totally anatomically correct. It's That's- so drastically different. It it's th- this change is the equivalent of nineties Papa Roach versus mid two thousands Papa Roach. I don't know how to respect you from now on <laughs> that. Uh, you, uh, you're that really is such making an a, apt comparison. You're really making a Papa Roach reference. I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm proud to say I know nothing about Papa Roach. Late '90s Papa Roach. Cut my life into pieces. This is my last resort. Blah, suffocation. Blah, no bleeding. Don't give a fuck if I cut my arm bleeding. Mid 2000s Papa Roach. I tear my heart open. I sew myself shut. My weakness is that I care too much. You've won me over. I'm now a huge Papa Roach fan. <laughs> In fact, I they call me Little Papa Roach around these parts because I just dress like Papa Roach all the time. Yeah. I love Papa Roach. I'm the king of the Papa Roach fan club. Um, and I'm now stabbing you in the back, much like a Tony Wong drawing, and shoving you off a cliff so that I can be the only one who sings who knows about, yeah. uh, Papa Roach in public. Yeah. Um, but the comparison is yes. that in the late 90s, they were just, when at the height of like the new metal rap metal craze, they were just one of those new metal rap metal bands. And then in the mid-2000s, they had like waned in popularity after like a couple like hit singles. 
and you know everybody forgot about them and then whenever emo got big suddenly they were emo and it yeah. was just like a different band yeah and they were popular for several more years and that kind of describes the arc of tony wong because it's like it starts out as mimicking tezuka ishinomori mostly tezuka though and then it starts mimicking like 80s manga illustrators and then in the ensuing next 20 years up until the year 2000 that's when the like in air quotes hong kong style of comics really takes off you know you had um like the taiwanese illustrator chen yuan you had um the chinese national treasure the cartoonist ma wing shing uh, he's he's kind of like the chinese equivalent to a jim lee he's like the biggest manhwa artist and like the the style the stylization that hong kong and chinese comics kind of landed on was this like very rendered painterly everyone has smooth skin photoshoppy painty look and by the end of you know the arc of this 900 issues it looks exactly like that yeah i mean i can i can get behind that early artwork the crazy kind of like like uh super deformed like cartoony style hyper violent and then i can get behind that just like really detailed highly rendered 80s style but this just looks like shit (laughs) it's funny because it's just kind of a parody of i mean it's always been imitating the stuff that's been happening at the time but it it just becomes so like such an absence of authenticity and such an absence of any genuine spark like, there's just no way that Tony Wong has anything to do with any of this these illustrations, which is so funny because he's, well, I don't want to spoil it. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Over the course of the multi-decade long run Wong has had with these characters, they've evolved a lot. However, they always stay close to their martial arts roots. The Little Rascals have reboot numerous times, retitling itself Oriental Heroes and Dragon Tiger Gate. Tony Wong's work all centers around one subject violence. No, not the choreography of dance of a hyperkinetic ballet of fists and feet, more like violence. He's really into stabbing with knives, and uh, he just loves stabbing. And the amount of... Which, once again, just reminds me of, like, stuff you draw when you're 13 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, on a previous Mm -hmm. episode, I talk about those Bob comics that I drew that were just, like, the sole purpose of them was to just make this one kid laugh on a bus on the way home from school. And it was like, no logic to this, no story. Honestly, in retrospect, just kind of like embarrassing that I even made those because I would like to think that I was doing more creative things. And I just think back and I'm like, no, I drew these like weird comics where it was just a guy getting fucking murdered in like horrendous ways. There was no story to it. It was just solely, they were just, they were basically just set pieces of like, how can I make this person laugh with like the most over the top graphic death possible? And that's just what this reminds me of as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it really does feel like just pure id. Like, you know, the, the cover that you referenced earlier where it's Tiger Wong being gutted by like a little girl, like a child on the cover is obviously intended to make the reader go, Tiger Wong is dead? No! And buy the thing. In yeah. the same way that like Mort Weisinger Superman era comics were like, Superman has a ant head now? Lois Lane is African-American. What? Didn't they like sometimes like come up with the cover first and then are like, yes, write this fully. And even like, wasn't that the case with uh, the, 
there was an issue of a comic where it was just Superman like fighting a gorilla or something. And I mean, they definitely did they that made all that, the time. They made that cover and then they just were like, figure out how this makes sense. Yeah. I mean, even so much so that when Mort Weisinger would take the train in, he lived in Long Island. And when he would take the train into the New York office on the way to the train station, he would just like stop and talk to little kids on the walk to the train station and be like, hey, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And they'd be like, I wish I could turn marshmallows into jelly beans. All right, I guess we're making a story where Superman can now turn marshmallows into jelly beans. It's, you know, I mean, that's honestly, that's a great power. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I mean, honestly, a marshmallow shop closed near my house and it was like going out of business. Everything must go. And I was like, oh, really? You've got to be kidding me. The marshmallow shop closed. How could that have closed? Everybody loves eating marshmallows. That's a that's a thing that everybody just loves eating by itself. It's a it's a beloved treat for adults and children across the country is just marshmallows. Uh, <laughs> uh, this episode of Deep Cuts is secretly a stealth propaganda episode for uh, the delectable nature of fucking marshmallows. No, jelly beans. Jelly beans. My bad. I love me some jelly. Oh, terrible Ronald Reagan. I'm not even going to finish yeah, it. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> Uh, the, the interesting thing though, is that this, so, you know, over the course, the, the arc of his career is, you know, Tony Wong starts out as this scrappy young guy, or the narrative is that he starts out as a scrappy young guy, becomes a wunderkind, gets work really early and then starts this company because he's so industrious. The reality of that, there's no way that's true. He definitely got help from somebody or something. I've never been able to figure that out, but there's definitely something that doesn't add up there. But he's so obsessed with the violence in these in these little rascal comics, and they become so popular that, well, it gets him in trouble. By 1975, Bruce Lee and the Shaw brothers had turned martial arts cinema into a conveyor belt of piping hot, quick, let's get into this bar by picking a fight with a bunch of goons and show off our wicked kung fu skills. This served as a catalyst for the manhwa market to ride a wave of kung fu comics. And guess who was dead center at the hurricane of success? Tony Wong. The backlash of this violence manifests in a pandemic of people being worried that they're, that these comics are kind of like, you know, corrupting the, the, the minds of the youth, youths, corrupting the minds of the youths. And uh, the government of Hong Kong introduced a law called the Indecent Publication Law, which restricted and censored the types of comics that could be published. Tony Wong obviously protests this. He says, what What the fuck? I should be able to publish comics about seven-year-olds stabbing 19-year-olds who are then stabbing 40-year-olds who are then stabbing 80-year-olds who are then being stabbed by dogs. Boys who stab girls, who stab boys, who stab girls, who stab boys, who stab girls. Exactly. All the stabbing. This causes... Stab life. <laughs> stab life. Um, this whole issue... And specifically, the implementation of the indecent publication law causes massive damage throughout the entire manhwa industry. Um, but Tony, he has a plan. He has a loophole. The law only applies to comic books, not comics within newspapers. So he started his own newspaper, which is interesting because that's very similar to what happened over here in the 1950s. You know, like EC comics and horror comics and like literally just like 
they had like two years of riding high and then overnight they were just fucked. It's yeah. like that, except for if you just figured out a way to just circumvent it. Well, even so, like they, so that happened, they, you know, rode the wave of success. And then there was this thing called the Kefauver hearings where this guy named Estes Kefauver used a book called Seduction of the Innocent, which was written by a psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham, who had done a bunch of tests where he had looked at people who were in juvenile detention facilities um, and interviewed them about their media consumption habits. And they all said they read comics because everybody in the United States read comics in the 1950s. So he used their answers to basically make a supposition that comics were corrupting the youths of America. This idea took off like wildfire. 17 states um, banned the sale of comics. Um, and the there was a big court case or a hearing, a big hearing, where William Gaines, who was the head, he was the publisher of EC Comics, which is kind of the main culprit of this hyper-violent horror comics explosion that was happening at the time. He went and gave testimony saying uh, that I don't think comics have any impact on anybody. I think they're harmless entertainment. And then every other publisher wouldn't defend comics. They were all cowards. The only issue being that Bill Gaines uh, was addicted to dextrine to lose weight. So halfway through his testimony, he started kind of nodding off and not being able to really perform. And so he started rambling about how they also produce comics that are adaptations of the Bible, which is true. They did. That's what they published before all of the horror stuff. Yeah. And he said, these comics have changed people's lives. They've turned them around. They've really helped people grow. And the the lawyer that Estes, that was helping Estes Kefauver was like, you just said that comics don't have any impact on anybody. And now you're saying that they've helped people. Couldn't they also have a negative impact, like exposing a child to a photo or a drawing of somebody's head being decapitated? And um, it just, it he just face planted. He, he, he basically, he, he staged a noble... Uh, defense and then just fucked fucked it up and so their solution was similar to tony wong ec started publishing a humor magazine not a comics magazine uh, or not a comic book it used to be a humor comic but then they turned it into a magazine and that magazine became mad magazine and it like lasted for 40 years and was a comedic institution in the u.s gave us jordan peele Really? I didn't know that. He yeah, was, that's where that's where he started. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, that was uh, Keegan Michael Key and Jordan Peele were uh, cast members on like a oh the later, TV show later stage Mad TV. Yeah, I forgot. The, I I did know that. I thought you meant he wrote. I just wasn't thinking correctly. Oh. I thought you meant he wrote for the magazine, which would have been awesome. You know who they should have gotten to defend comics back in the fifties was Chris Gaines, the musician. Garth Brooks's alter ego. Oh right, yeah. What was the name? Of, yes, yeah. When you said Chris Gaines, I was thinking of. The uh, the guy who was on the bald headed guy who was on American Idol. Oh, uh, what the fuck is that guy's name? Who cares? Yeah, that guy. Because uh, <laughs> he, he he also likes comics and is like friends with Jim Lee. Strangely, oh really? That's yeah. a weird coincidence because I did yeah. not know that. His name's not Chris Gaines. I don't know why I went there, but yeah, is yeah. It Chris Daughtry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chris Daughtry. Um, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, we should do an episode um, all about the behind the scenes drama of Chris Daughtry. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure there's nothing. He seems like a nice guy. Uh, in the 90s, Garth Brooks, at the height of his fame, put out a weird concept album where he po- he was it was a rock album and he created this alter ego named Chris Gaines. And he wore was a this, wig. Like, yeah, he was like this weird like wispy wig and he kind of had like eyeshadow on and he was kind of like 
emo a little bit, even though emo didn't exist. I love it. Just imagine him going up on stage or up on the stand. He's like brushing his bangs yeah. out of the corners of his eyes while he's like, yeah, I just think comics are like really good for kids. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I'm doing that voice. That's just, that's just what I picture Chris Gaines sounding like. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, he, he, he circumvents this law that's basically genetically engineered to take him out. He's like, fuck you guys. I'm going to make a newspaper. And so he starts publishing all kinds of manhwa in this newspaper. And it is extremely popular. Um, it, it then buys him a little breathing room. And then slowly over time, he's able to kind of like whittle away at that law. And then he starts publishing more manga or more manhwa and more manhwa and more manhwa and more manhwa. And he just like basically the entire Hong Kong market kind of turns into Jade Man, his publishing company. He, he just runs it basically. Um, and then in 1980, he takes the company fucking public. Like, that's how successful they are. They're just like, all right, guys, we're going to have an IPO and we're going to all be billionaires. And also, mind you, that most of the books he's publishing during this time period have his name on them. Not all of them, but most of them have his name on them. And he didn't. He didn't fucking do that shit. Like, he just didn't. Um, so during the late, the, 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 you know, the mid 80s, um, he's basically the king of the king of the town. Uh, Jade Man is controlling between eighty-five and ninety percent of Hong Kong's manhwa interest. I mean, they they basically were the only game in town. They just said "fuck you" to everybody, and he had a mon- I mean, he had a monopoly. Like it's it's funny how, regardless of the place on earth, there are there are there are these constants in every comic story. There's always a monopoly. There's always some rich businessman. There's always somebody taking credit for everything and not being not being held accountable for the fact that they may or may not have done these things. And there's always people having to kind of be scrappy and figure out a way around some sort of institutional impediment. Yeah. Uh, it, kind of, it rings true in every air aspect of, of business because it, it, funny enough, just reminds me of like stuff that's happening now where here in Los Angeles, there, you know, some new laws have been passed when it comes to like freelancers and what's considered a freelancer and an independent contractor. And the laws are like supposed to be protecting uh, people, but in reality, they're more kind of designed to like get like um, gig economy jobs like out of the city. Like it's like the real reason is because they just want to get rid of Uber and Lyft and Postmates and all these things. You know, they just politicians that just want to get rid of them. Um, But they're sort of framed as like, we're, you know, we're, we're helping uh, freelancers not be taken advantage of by companies. Um, but, you know, so now that these laws are passed and it's like there's, you know, there's all these rules about like what can be considered a employee and what is considered an independent contractor. And it's like, oh, you can't have somebody like working freelance for you if they're doing a job that people working in-house are also doing. And if they're doing something that's like integral to the business, then they can't be considered a freelancer. So they have to be an employee and all this stuff. And, you know, the way that companies are just in the same way circumventing that and, uh, you know, and it's really kind of easy at the end of the day to circumvent it where it's just like, oh, uh, well, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a, uh, a writer, a freelance writer. This is a freelance, uh, this is a freelance copy associate or whatever. You just come (laughs) up with like a fake name for what they are and then suddenly you're fine. It's just like these people just immediately go into like circumnavigation mode and figuring yeah. out ways to, if anything, it just makes people get more creative with how they are skirting the laws and things like yeah, that. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, he basically just becomes a robber baron, like, but just make it comics, you know, like it's like it, it's it's shocking how many of those types of people are in comics right now. Like, I just don't think that they're it's publicized or talked about openly that they're them. But there's a good number of those type of people. They're just not as successful as Mr. Wong was, you know, in the in the 80s. Um, everything's basically going great for Tony Wong. He's on the top of the world. Nothing could touch him. You know, he has multiple series burning up the charts. He's really just kind of, he's doing it. He's making a living and a good living making comics and also taking credit for other people's comics. And then the Hong Kong stock market crashed. Expand or die. The manhwa comics industry went from a $700 million a year industry to a $100 million industry. Subsequently, Jade Man... That's a bad hat, Harry. Yeah. Subsequently, Jade Man Comics somehow managed to hold out and not go bankrupt. Maybe because they were the entire goddamn industry. So Tony narrowly avoids being put out of business. But now that he's back on his feet, what does he do? Does he rest on his laurels? No. He starts on that world domination shit, my friend. Uh, in 1988, Tony Wong started an American wing of his company, Jade Man Comics, which launched with four titles. Uh, did you did you ever see these books when you were a kid? I mean, I don't know. If I did, I have no memory of it. Because <laughs> the, they were... The, these books, like... They, the covers of these books just look so much like all of the weird 90s, uh, um, like martial arts comics that I saw tons of, but that was kind of the point is that they all kind of look like this. Yeah. It, it, these, I, I worked in two different comic book stores and these books were the books that there was a very specific type of guy and he would always bring in just long boxes filled with Jade Man comics. He's the type of guy that goes to the grocery store with a buck knife. On his hip, yeah. These comics, and it just reminds you just how fucking wild the '90s was. Because we grew up in the '90s. I think there's a phenomenon that, like, when you're a kid, like when we were kids, like the '80s was like this distant historical thing that like happened a million years ago. And as we get older, it still feels like, oh yeah, like the '90s was like not that long ago. It was. It's. It feels contemporary to us, Mm -hmm. but in reality, it was. Fuck, it was a shitload of time ago. Yeah. And 30 years. We don't think about it because it feels contemporary to us, but it was such a different, it was so different. Yeah. And this is like another, this is one of those examples. I was thinking about this the other day, not about these specifically. And I don't know if these comics had this, but those comics, those kind of like the, the action and like martial arts comics that were like put out by these like little tiny publishers that weren't Marvel or DC or Image or whatever, uh, you know, that you just, you read them like, I actually have some of them. Uh, I have some RoboCop comics from the 90s um, that was put out by one of these types of, pu- of publishers. Uh, but usually it was like more generic shit. And they're just like, they're not good. The art is very shitty. The stories, the storytelling is just non-existent. They're just pure violence. And every three pages, there is like an ad for just some like gratuitously sexy comic about some girl with huge <laughs> boobs. Mm-hmm. Just like scantily clad just like fucking draped over it and it's just like jesus like this was this was for kids whenever we were younger just like every three pages just like a fucking just full-on naked chick Mm -hmm. just like hanging 
over over the page. The uh, the f- the four books that Jade Man c- came to America with were the Blood Sword, which was the one that was drawn by Ma Wing Shing, and yeah, it looks. And I kind of lo- I love that cover. So the cover shows the protagonist, who I don't remember his name now. I have a bunch of these issues, but I'm not gonna lie, a lot of the Jade Man comics kind of blur together. Um, but it's a, a young man with like a light shining on his face and a big eye patch and windswept hair, and it is fucking dope looking. Yeah. Um, so the blood sword Jade Man, which is somewhat confusing to me as a kid. I, whenever I was working at one of the comic book stores I was working at, like people would every once in a blue moon come in and come in asking for Jade Man comics. And I never knew whether they were talking about the company Jade Man or the comic Jade Man. It's kind of like whenever, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if they, if it was, if it was like this in Arizona in New Mexico, we, uh, we referred to soda as Coke. All soda. Yeah, so all soda. Like in the Midwest, they call it pop, and it's called soda or whatever. But in, in New Mexico, it's just Coke. So there's like a weird logic, inner internal logic to it, where when you when you say Coke, you just mean soda. And then if you want Coke, then you say Coca-Cola. That means that oh, specific weird. one. But Coke is just a generic term that means any soda. So if like, oh, uh, we need some Coke or whatever. And it's like, oh, what kind of Coke? Oh, Dr. Pepper or whatever. So when I first moved to California, I have a distinctive memory of going, uh, ordering or getting a refill at a counter at a fast food place. Uh, oh, yeah, I was ordering and I was like, oh, uh, can I get a Coke? And then they just gave me Coke. And I was just like, they didn't even ask me what kind I wanted. And then I had to like slowly learn. You're like, oh. And it's weird because it's like, it's objectively weird. Like that yeah. it, it was called, but I didn't think anything of it until I moved to a different place. But in retrospect, it's like that's that's confusing. Hmm. That it's just called that we just called it Coke. Interesting. Uh, the third book that they published um, was a book called Force of Buddha's Palm, which is more kind of like historical, you know, uh, action adventure stories about Buddha's life. And then finally, our dude Tony Wong showing up with his uh, long-running characters, Tiger and Dragon Wong. The newly renamed Oriental Heroes. I don't know if this is a coincidence or just a purposeful thing, considering the way that these comics just at every point in history just were aping like trends and things like that. Mm -hmm. But in that second cover, that looks exactly like Corey Feldman. Exactly. It really it's Asian Corey Feldman. Yeah, it really does. Holy shit. Wow. Weird. I wonder if they were looking at a photo of Corey Feldman while drawing that. That's so weird. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, of these two... You ever want to see Corey Feldman just posing next to a majestic tiger? Look up uh, Oriental Heroes issue 19. Uh, of the of the four books, um, the ones that I was always into were the, or am into, are the uh, the Blood Sword because of Ma Wing Shing's artwork and Oriental Heroes just because it's so fucking weird. It's so weird because it still kind of has the tone of the, like, comedic stuff. From, you know, the, this guy's getting stabbed. And then, you know, Golden Dragon looks at the camera and crosses his eyes. She's like, this is so bizarre. I mean, it's, it's just, it's insane, the, the dichotomy between those original things and what this is. And it's, it really is a case of, like, the Emperor wears no clothes. Where there's no, I just, I just don't believe that, I mean, it, I do believe, people do think. It, they, it's the same type of people that think that Stan Lee is an artist. They just don't, they just don't know that he's not the person who draws Spider-Man. Like I remember once when I was in art school, I was talking with somebody, I don't remember who. And I was saying that, oh, I, I really liked Todd McFarlane. I like the way he draws Spider-Man. 
And the, the person I was talking to was like, oh, you mean Stan Lee? He draws Spider-Man. It's like, no, I mean, one, no, he doesn't. Two, there are a lot of people Different that draw artists. Spider-Man. Yeah, it's not yeah. one yeah, They're like, no, no, no. Stan Lee draws Spider-Man. And they were like, they like, they like knew for a fact that Stan Lee drew Spider-Man, which I understand that impulse just because of the amount of propaganda surrounding Stan and the myth of him creating these characters. I, I get it. I get why people would be like staunchly like, no, you're a conspiracy theorist. Like he draws those comics. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird to me when people just have like absolute conviction about something that's just wildly wrong and they just like double, triple, quadruple down on it. And it's like, I don't know whether you just at some point realize you're wrong, but you're just doubling down on it. Or if you just you're just so sure that this is right, that you would just like from your perspective, I am just such an idiot for think for thinking it's wrong. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I got this this argument with this guy who insisted that um ever that Rod Serling didn't write it's almost kind of the opposite of this in a weird way, but he insisted that Rod Serling didn't write any episode of of the Twilight, Twilight Zone and that he just used ghostwriters and took credit for their work. So um, he was like accusing Rod Serling of the thing that like Tony Wong, Edward Stratemeyer, you know, Stan Lee, like the things that they actually did. Like he was absolutely sure that Rod Serling had a, just a network of ghostwriters and didn't write a single episode of, of the Twilight Zone. Uh, and I was just like, where are you getting this? And I even like looked it up and like did research to see if there was some fringe conspiracy theory. And as far as I know, this was just something that was in his head. And he insisted that it was true. And I was like, like, literally, where are you getting this from? Show me anything that even insinuates that this is the case. It's, it's also really funny, too, because of the, like, Rod Serling tropes, you know, the, like, recurring things of isolation, of one man alone, you know, the the it, in an insane world, it's the sane man who's insane tropes, yeah. the twist endings, like... Obviously, not every episode of the show was written by him. Yeah, I mean, there was there was episodes written by you know like Richard Matheson and yeah, stuff like that, yeah. but they were but they were credited like teleplay by Richard Matheson. Yeah. But he wrote he wrote I think he he wrote like uh, he wrote a lot of them. He wrote like half or like over half like a, like three quarters of the episodes basically. Yeah. And now I just want to do my Rod Serling impression for the rest of this episode. You're about you're a traveler on a strange journey into a <laughs> world. That's adjacent to the Twilight Zone. Your your Rod Serling is a less drunk uh, Casey Kasem. I'm Casey Kasem. <laughs> Today we're talking about Tony Wong. Your your impression of Rod Serling is just like now make him a little bit more drunk, Casey Kasem. <laughs> well, the but the the Rod Rod Serling has really stiff upper lip, and he's like, "Hey, I'm Rod Serling." Today. We're going into a world of sights and sounds. We're going into a world of people taking credit for other motherfuckers' work. Now, that, now, now have two old fashions. <laughs> Ooh, I'm Gigi Gijum. <laughs> I'm Gigi Gijum, and today we're talking about Tony Wong on the outskirts of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> None of this is making it into the finished episode, but I love it. Uh... I mean, you say that, but that whole extended thing where I was doing a Bane impression and you were doing a Kermit impression is in the episode, whatever episode that was. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, it. The, I mean, that that that's fucking Corey Feldman. It is Corey. It's, it's, Corey, it's Corey Feldman. Feldman. <laughs> uh, it's Corey Feldman, and the the thing that's also really cool about these is that while they are 
very derivative of the stuff that was happening in Asia at the time. Over here, they don't look super out of place, but they look really cool. Like yeah. they don't look like the stuff that was happening in 1988 over here, you know? Um, and I, I wish that they had been more of a success. Uh, and honestly, they might've been if the stories were a little bit, A, more comprehensible and B, the sequential pages were better. Like they don't really use grids because all the pages are made so fucking quickly. And with like a hundred people each working on a little tiny piece of it. Yeah. There's some, there's some layouts in a video of Tony Wong, which we'll talk more about later, which I have another thought about them, but the layouts that he's working on are just like, I mean, I'm obviously all for unconventional storytelling or whatever, but like, it's just like it's five or six pages just so overly stylistic that it's like, what is even going on in these? This mm-hmm. is not a story. This is just yeah. like these really just elaborately like p- placed poses and like just things overlapping things. And just like, there's no, like what is even happening in this? I can't, I can't tell what's happening in this other than like this person is just like floating in a weird void doing poses, <laughs> which is kind of awesome. Really? Like that you just described every image comic from 1992. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that, that is definitely a particular style of comics from the 90s. Case in point, those Robocop comics I told you about where, like, they were like, – one of my friends just, like, found them in a bin and just thought I would want them. And I got them and I was like, oh, awesome, like, these Robocop comics from the 90s. And then you try to read them and you're just like, this is – this is just – this is boring. Like, it's just like – it's just like mindless – uh, over the top action with no like co- coherence to it at all. Yeah, and so you just read it and you're just like, ah, just read that. <laughs> the interesting thing too about these Jade Man comics that were brought over here is that they were like almost completely different in style. Like the the way they were, the way they were printed was different. They had like this weird waxy covers. The interiors were newsprint, and they were 64 pages long. So. You know, normal comics over here at that time were like 24 pages. So you're getting three times the amount of comics for the same price. But they also just don't feel good to hold. Like they they like dirt sticks to them. And like they were the kind of comics where you would accidentally like leave them in your car. And then you'd try to pick them up and they'd be stuck together. And they would make like a sound when you would pull them apart. Like they're not. You never want that. No, they're not good. They're really not good. Um, uh, The the. The, the colors in these books are also really cool because so they're they're black and white line art with, you know, kind of spot primary colors. And then every X number of panels, there'll be a fully painted rendered panel, almost kind of like for emphasis, you know, like on Ren and Stimpy or something when yeah. they would like zoom in on something and it'd be this crazy oil painting. It's like that. But throughout the whole book, we're like every four pages, there's just a... Oh, yeah, now there's just a fucking oil painting in the middle of this page. Yeah, it reminds me of, like, those, like, f- like fan paintings you see that, like, fans do them, but also, like, sometimes Adult Swim, like, actually incorporates them into their real, like, yeah. marketing and stuff like that, where it's, like, these, like, overly photorealistic oil paintings of, like, Rick and Morty or whatever. Yeah, and it never quite feels right. Like, it's always a little strange and a little off, but you're kind of like, well, oh, that's cool. That's like the whole thing with all of these Oriental Heroes comics is it's always, you know, two people squaring off and then there's a panel of somebody squinting, you know, and furrowing their brow. And that one's the one that's like, you know, super rendered with like, you know, pencil highlights and, you know, oils and, you know, whatever the however they're making the very rendered, rendered colors. 
the, the another thing that's kind of interesting about these these specific era issues is that all of the writing in air quotes because it's it's all all the writing is on all four of these books is credited to Tony Wong, but all the English language the English language Jesus Christ. English language localizations are done by Mike Barron, the guy who wrote Nexus and a bunch of Punisher, and Len Wein, the co-creator of Wolverine and the editor of Watchmen and creator of Swamp Thing and, you know, one of the, like, the, uh, the like, legendary American comics creators. And whenever I saw that in those issues, I was always curious, like, how much did they get paid for that? Yeah, do you think that was just, like, the equivalent of, like, picking up some side work just yeah. to make some extra cash? Yeah, definitely, because Len Wein also did localizations for, like, a bunch of manga in the 80s, like the black and white imports, you know, that happened at, like, Eclipse and shit like that. Like, he did the he did the localizations for uh, Cobra. Have you read that book, Space Adventure Cobra? It's basically, like, Han Solo in outer space doing stuff. Maybe he was just trying to raise his uh, charisma and communication. <laughs> I think it's just there's a specific type of comics writer who will kind of just do anything. You know, it's kind of just like they make a living off of their craft. And a lot of times, especially during the 70s and 80s, there wasn't anything to do except work for hire weird jobs. Sure, Batman is a probably better paying weird work for hire weird job. But, you know, in 1975, that was the goal. So if you're doing some weird manga localization that will help you get to next month when your Batman pitch might be approved, fuck it. I guess I'll take it. No, I think he definitely was trying to level up his charisma and communication so that he could finally ask Yukiko out. Copy that. The best part of these Jade Man comics, though, is the weird ass propaganda that's in the back of every comic. Propaganda is such a apt term uh, for this. Uh, because like, I mean, first of all, in this picture where he's standing in front of this sports car, he just straight up looks like a Dragon Ball Z side, like background character. Yeah, he really like, does. Like when they have shots of the city and you see those like just fucking 80s ass dudes just oh, like walking yeah. down the street. Oh, yeah. He looks like a fucking background character from Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. Basically, at the end of every issue, they would have a bunch of almost lifestyle portraits of Tony Wong doing stuff. So he's like, you know, as Andrew said, there's one of him standing in front of a Corvette, smiling, a shit-eating grin, and waving. There's one of, there's like a painting of him that honestly, he's in a tux, and it's a pink watercolor painting, and it really looks like the type of painting that would be in like your great aunt's house of like a dictator. You know what I mean? Like you're in another country, and, or she's immigrated here, and she has a portrait of whoever the, you know highly beloved supreme leader is in their living room like it's so weird that he's depicting himself in this way in these comics and like in the there's the 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 main image that was kind of like splattered in all of these issues is it's him standing on a blue endless holding up all four issues the all four number ones of the various books wearing a white shirt and a red tie smiling that same shitting grin with the big white text, watch for them above him. Yeah. This and like the video of him like yeah, drawing, drawing, they just feel, I mean, especially the video, it feels like Chinese or like North Korean, like governmental propaganda. Totally. Where it's just like, watch Supreme Leader doing his work. Yep. And like, it just feels so staged. Yeah. And it does this thing, which I, I think I've talked about this on a previous episode uh, where I see this frequently with a lot of like these types of artists 
where like it'll show them being like, oh, here he is in his studio drawing. And then it shows them. And I always want to just see like the drawing happening. And like, but it's just like, they're just sitting there like just drawing, like filling in like an eyebrow over and over again. And they just sit there doing that. And then they ne- you never see them like actually drawing. And you're just like, does this person even know how to draw? Like, is this person just pretending like they they can draw and they're just hiding the fact that they don't actually draw their own shit? Yeah. And like, that's what that, that video definitely feels like that. He's got these like, sort of, as I mentioned before, these just sort of like elaborately uh, composited layouts that are kind of incomprehensible and can't, they don't look like they're telling any kind of story, but they are just super detailed. And he's just sitting there just drawing over an eyebrow over and over again and just making it look like he's like putting the finishing touches on it. But it just looks like he's faking it and like he doesn't actually know how to draw. Yeah, and it's interesting too how much of his playbook is kind of cribbed directly from Stan Lee like he seems he seems like somebody who really and I don't I don't obviously I can't read the manhwa version so I don't know if they go as hard about the great genius of supreme leader mobster in chief Tony Wong in the actual original comics but over here the localization ones are I mean they're full on trying to be Stan's soapbox era Stan Lee where cultivating this brand, this cult of personality, trying to make you fall in love with Tony Wong, but in a really lame, like, Xerox. Watch for them. Yeah, watch for them. Like, it just, it's so lame. Like, th- there's, an, there's a, an image of him sitting at a desk drawing, wearing the same shirt and tie from the previous one where he's holding up the issues. And he's like... He looks like a fucking, like, IBM, like, middle management dude. Like, he doesn't look like an artist. That's not cool. Like, you look over his shoulder, and there's, like, some shelves with, like, what look like textbooks. Like Who draws, like, in a fucking button-up shirt and tie? So lame. It's so lame. Like, and you know that he's not actually, he's not even drawing with, like, an an art pencil. He's drawing with a number number two two yellow pencil. Like... (laughs) That's it. That, I know you're not drawing that drawing, Tony Wong. You're a fucking charlatan and a hack. Like, this is so silly. The best part, though, is that all of these comics, they like, they have the created by Tony Wong just splattered over all of them. I mean, they're they're everywhere. Um, uh, the interesting thing, though, is as they go on, they I, th- I feel like they start kind of realizing that it doesn't translate as well to the American marketplace, that maybe we don't buy that. And so at a certain point, the the books get slightly different in their crediting system. They start crediting the English writer, despite the fact that, like, uh, like on the cover, despite the fact that they just were the localization person. So, like, the Bloodsword number one is a fucking dope-ass drawing of this dude in with a rad fedora of, like, golden mullet with his fiery bird superimposed over him. And the, it says... Written and illustrated by Ma Wing Shing, script by Mike Barron, which is like not really true. Yeah, I mean it's the equivalent of the the spaghetti western thing of just like give everybody fake American names so that Italian people will think it's an American western and Americans will think it's an American western. Yeah, um, but goddamn, that cover is so dope. Like, look at that fucking painting. God, it's great. It's so cool. 
Um, Ma Wingsheng, uh, he's kind of, like I said previously, like the Jim Lee of the Hong Kong comics scene. And he eventually ends up breaking away from Jade Man and starting his own publisher called Jonesky, where he did a comic called Storm Riders for like 20 years or some shit. But like the the layouts for Bloodsword are just so much better than everything else. The action is so much better. The use of panel breaking and um, when to use those kind of like highly painted panels is just so much better. It's also really cool than the other ones. It's also really cool in that like in a similar way to kind of kung fu movies where someone will scream, you know, uh, fist of the blind swordsman or whatever. And like it, he punches somebody. Um, they have a similar mechanic in Blood Sword where there are these little captions that pop up like whenever somebody connects a blow. Fathomless sea palm. Like how cool is that? That's so fucking dope. Yeah. So cool. God, these books are so great. Honestly, Oriental Heroes is fun, but if you ever see any of these blood sword back issues, those are definitely the ones to grab. Specifically the Ma Wing Shing ones, because he leaves at a certain point. Um, but he's there for the first like 30 or so. Um, he also was like really good at drawing speed lines um and not making it feel like Oh yeah, I'm choosing not to draw this background and just have somebody, some assistant, drop in a bunch of speed lines to make the page be done sooner. Like they feel very purposeful. Um, and then we get to the bad news part. Unfortunately, most of the people in the '80s didn't share our level of enthusiasm for Jade Man comics. They failed to take off in the U.S. And by 1993, the company stopped publishing. Before Jade Man ran aground, Tony Wong made close to two billion dollars in Hong Kong money, Hong Kong dollars. Not the company, Tony Wong, the individual. And here's where things get even weirder. In 1991, Tony Wong went to prison for forgery. Act 3, The Greatest Tragedy in American Life. Yeah, the business magnate who once controlled over 90% of the manhwa industry in Hong Kong was sent to prison for four years for forgery. And this is something that is infinitely frustrating to me. I, I really wish I could tell... I, I just want to know what the intricate details of this are. Like, I, I just... he's Tony Wong is such a fascinating person to me. Um, and I, I want to know actually why he went to prison. Like, why was he forging money? Well, I mean... Yeah, so we don't we, we, we don't know the full details because there's nothing really that's been translated into English as a resource, um, which I guess just means that this story just has never been notable or yeah. I mean, here to, Tony Wong himself is English speaking yeah isn't, country isn't a huge name in, in American um, comics. Yeah, but the one thing I will say, which is the thing that just occurred to me before even getting to the part about the fact that he went to jail, um, if you know, if Jade Man Comics uh, never really took off in the U.S., never really found its momentum and, you know, kind of ended in a sort of a financial flop. And yet Tony Wong walked away personally pocketing two billion dollars, then something was going on. No shit. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's why I say there's just so many things about his story that don't add up. There's no way he's not affiliated with some sort of criminal enterprise. Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of that, of just that cliche thing, you know, like in the producers of just like a business that solely exists as a way to 
um, funnel money yeah. through and into the pockets of the people, and then they sort of cut and run, and you know they don't, they don't care if the, the business fails because they, they were just using it as a way to get money. Get money. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating too because it doesn't really seem to have impacted his life like in any way. Like he, so he goes to prison for forgery. And then, you know, whatever those intimate details are there, I, I don't know. I want to know. So if you know, you should send us a, uh email. I would very much. If you have any it. information about the uh, intimate details of Tony Wong's uh, forgery uh, crimes, you can email us at andrew at deepcutspod.com or dave at deepcutspod.com. This is true. Freshly minted email addresses. Yes. Um, yeah, I, it's, he's such a fascinating person to me and he basically, you know, he gets sentenced to four years in prison for this crime of forgery that we'd have no idea why the fuck he's forging money for. And he gets out of prison in 1993 after only serving two years of his sentence. Must be nice to be a fucking billionaire. So what was the next step? Did he, uh, you know, take a little time off, take a little, take a little siesta, a little nap? No, he made a new comic called... Tiger in the Cage, which is so badass. Like, I know he didn't draw it. He probably didn't even write it. But I just love the fact that Tony Wong is like, I know I just got out of prison. Fuck it. Let's make a prison comic about my time in prison. I love how on the nose it is. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like everything, everything about his comics is just so on the nose. So on the nose. And also the fact that Tiger Wong is like one of the stand-ins for him. And I, to my understanding, I've never actually read Tiger in the Cage, but I don't believe that it is a... Little Rascal comic. But there are there are so many like weird recurring things with him where he's obsessed with the name Wong. Like it's his actual first name, but it's the last name of all of the characters. But it's also repeated through all these other things. He's also obsessed with Tiger and Dragons. It's so weird. I mean, it's not weird. It's just I love seeing somebody have these like iterative compulsions where they're they just think that the thing they, that worked last time will work again this time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a character before named Tiger Wong, and it was successful. What if we did a new book and we just called it Wong Tiger Man, which is a joke. I don't think he actually had that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a fucking Tony Wong book called Wong Tiger Man. It's a hit. It's a hit right now. So he makes this book, Tiger in the Cage. He doesn't have his publishing company anymore because Jade Man went under. So what does he do? Does he get somebody else to publish it? I'm sure he's very well connected in the Hong Kong Manwa scene. Fuck that noise. He's a fucking billionaire. So he started his own company again, this time naming it Jade Dynasty. And he started publishing comics. And uh, surprise, surprise, it's wildly successful again. He relaunches Little Rascals, this time under the name Dragon Tiger Gate. Um, They made a movie starring Donnie Yen. uh, And also, he's just continually self-published it. Or not self-published, he has a company, but you know what I mean. It's basically him self-publishing it. And so there's been over 900 issues of Dragon Tiger Gate. Uh, There's also a bunch of amazing promo photos where (laughs) he threw a party for the publication of the 900th issue. And he wore like a businessman style like short sleeve button up that has camouflage pattern on it. Yeah. It's such a fucking... I mean, he's like wearing a camouflage suit in like another video. Yeah, yeah. There's a YouTube video of him like cutting a cake and being like, we did it. We published 900 issues of Little Rascals. And he's wearing a fucking camouflage suit jacket. <laughs> like, I fucking love you, Tony Wong. 
He's also like looking. Look at that photo. How old do you think that guy is? I mean, he was born in 1950. We know that. So, I mean, right now he's 70, 70 years old. That photo. Here, he's that photo does not look like someone who's 68 or no, however the fuck old he is. Definitely not. That guy's living well, man. Yeah. He, he's he's steady diet of baby marrow or he lo- something. He looks like mid 40s. Yeah. Late 40s. Yeah. It's amazing. God, fucking Tony Wong. Uh, Tony Wong's legacy would be more than 10 times the amount of fame and fortune that most comics creators get in their lifetime. He's a mover and he's a shaker. So what is he doing these days? Well, he's putting together a theme park. A theme park! Back in 2015, it was announced that an $800 million theme park with three areas, one that would have all attractions and exhibits based on comic book characters from uh, China and Hong Kong, one that would be... um, commemorations of Chinese movies and one that would be like an amusement park area with like rides and like roller coasters that would all be comics themed uh, would be built. And in the press release that I read for it, he's like asked by the reporter like, oh, what, what are you, you know, what are you going to do to get people in here? And how, how's the progress going? And what are some of the like, you know, things that we can look forward to about the park? And every time he's just, just like, can't tell you that it'll, uh, it'll help my competitors copy me. Can't, can't tell you. Which is just so like, yeah, that's so that's such bullshit. I got nothing. Yeah. Although I do love the idea of this. I th- I talked about this in the Ultraman episode, but uh, I I feel like similar to the way that in cartoons, pizza and burgers always look like they taste way better than the reality of what pizza and burgers taste like. Uh, I feel like there's an often parodies in cartoons of Disneyland. And it, the parodies of the cartoons are always like a hyper stylized version of it where it's always like a, a theme park, like dedicated to one specific character. And, you know, in real life, like that's not exactly what Disneyland is, is because it's like, you know, yeah, it's like Disney characters, but there's a lot of different Disney characters that encompass a lot of different IPs. And it is more of this kind of mishmash of a large catalog of characters. But in cartoons, they always simplify it as being like, oh, this is a uh, Krusty the Clown land or like whatever. Um, and I would I, I just for some reason, something about that is just really appealing to me of just going to this weird, almost like fascist theme park of just like this, this, this like almost fascist uh, worship of one specific character. I would just love to go to a theme park like that. So things like the Philippines Ultraman park or this just sound really appealing to me. Thailand. The, oh, I said Th- Philippines. Yeah, yeah, yeah the- Thailand. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. I would like to go to an Ultraman theme park. I would also really like to go to a theme park around Little Rascals slash Oriental Heroes slash Dragon Tiger Gate. My question is, when you walk in, is there a giant archway that's just like children stabbing each other? Yes. Because if it's not, it's like it's a small world, but but, just, but with with his little weird, yeah, it's a stab world, yeah. I really want that to be a thing, but honestly, I haven't actually been able to find any information online about if this fucking thing actually got made. I want it to be, but it kind of seems like it didn't. Yeah, uh, and it, it just it begs so many questions, like. As we've said multiple times over the course of the video, like there's either family money, mob ties, both. Is he just a psychopath? Like I don't, 
I don't have the answers to any of this, but it really is fascinating how much of the Venn diagram of his life matches up with other people in comics and the kind of lengths that they've either gone to take credit or the kind of model of the person that is just psychopathically driven to succeed. Well, you know, this is the thing that's most fascinating to me about this story is so, you know, we've covered we've covered um, some other similar stories like this on previous episodes. Um, and, you know, the, the Stanley episode is upcoming. We, it's we, coming. Not not we haven't done it yet, but it's going to happen. Um, but there's like but we've we've talked about it on, yeah. in brief on some episodes. So, you, you know, you have the, the the story of Stan Lee and then we, you know, episode one of this show, the Stratemeyer syndicate, the guy who ran the syndicate of ghostwriters that wrote Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and, you know, took all the money and didn't give them any of the credit. And, you know, that was sort of like un, unveiled. That was released to the public in the 70s as part of a, a lawsuit. And, you know, there's there's other examples of things like that. Um, and what's really interesting about this story is that this, you know, there's very few details about the real inner workings of Tony Wong and his business and his business practices and the true reality of what is going on behind the scenes of these books. And it's pretty obvious. And some of it is known, you know, in terms of like the fact that he doesn't actually draw much of any of the, of this stuff. Um, and he's sort of giving himself credit for things that are done by other people. Um, but this as far as what I could tell, this this was never the lid was never blown off of this in the same way that the Stratemeyer Syndicate was, or even Stanley. I mean, Stanley was never embroiled in a huge scandal that surround surrounded what happened, uh, and in in many cases he's remembered differently. But with people who know and care about comics, it's commonly known. Uh, but it, it seemed like the lid was never quite blown off on Tony Wong. It seems like he just kind of got away with doing what Stanley did and what Edward Stratemeyer did and, and Bob Kane and, and never being called out on. Well, I think also there's part of it too. That's like, it's kind of an open secret where because of the release schedules, everyone knows that he has assistance. So with that kind of wiggle room, or at least that's <laughs> just from a purely outside perspective. Like I'm just, there's no way that people actually think that he did these things, but they think, well, he was there directing it, guiding it, you know, working yeah. with them. Kind of in the same way that, like, nobody actually thinks that Steve Jobs created the iPhone by himself. But they think that he created the iPhone because he was the person there doing it. You yeah. know what I mean? He was, what's the quote that he always, that he says in all the movies of, like, some people play instruments, I play the orchestra. <laughs> you know, like... I think that's culturally what they think of Tony Wong as. Wait, you mean a conductor? There's a name for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, but it's interesting that Tony Wong hasn't abandoned the idea of being an artist. Like Stan, towards the end of his life, literally would just put his name on things as he created it and then written by this person and drawn by that person. He didn't create anything if he didn't write and or draw it. Like you can't copyright an idea. You can only copyright an execution of an idea. Yeah, And so if you didn't participate in the execution, therefore you had nothing to do with its creation. And towards the end of his life, Stan had like, you know, this series of audio dramas that he created, an animated television show that he created, you know, a, a series of 
horribly financially unsuccessful comics that Boom Studio publishes that he created. But he has next to nothing to do with them. He just hears the pitch and goes, that sounds like something that'd be good for my legacy. Put my name on it. What's his weakness? They've all got to have a weakness. So I think that it's fascinating. He got four dicks. (laughs) It's fascinating. that. You'd think would be a benefit, but it's a weakness. Get four times the amount of desire of a normal human. Think about the logistics of it. Just highly impractical. It's interesting, though, because he he doesn't abandon the idea of being an artist. Like, his identity is that I'm Tony Wong, the artist, and I'm very successful. Not, I'm Tony Wong, the businessman. Like, because at a certain point, he could have just, I mean, that's kind of what Walt Disney did. It's not like Walt Disney... The idea of him was an animator. It was like, oh, he's the guy who like runs the studio and is responsible for the theme parks and, you know, this, that and the other. Like he pivoted at a certain point and was like, I'm not really an artist. I do these things. I think some people are very envious of being creatives and they will go out of their way to posture as being creatives. Yeah. yeah. Um, And you see that a lot in like screenwriting I, I i don't even remember like several months ago i had sent you that link for like some random facebook ad that i got that was like some guy who like had created a website to pitch this screenplay that he had written that was about some action hero character named like hard steel strong or whatever yeah some yeah, yeah, old, yeah, yeah some like jack reacher ripoff bullshit and um his whole like about me part of his like little sales website was just like, Oh, I'm like a, I'm a surgeon or a dentist or something like that. And I just decided I wanted to get into writing. And so I, and and I feel like that's like a thing that happens a lot. There are so many doctors and like lawyers and like architects and accountants who like in their like forties, like, just decide like that they want to become a screenwriter and they have enough disposable income that they can just basically stop working and then just like dedicate their lives to like just wanting to like become a screenwriter. And then they write this thing and it's just so dumb and so hacky and they just don't understand like what it even means to like write a movie or do anything creative. They just want the idea of it. They want to feel like they are a creative person because they're in their 40s and they've just decided that they're just unhappy with the they're unhappy with the identity that they've chosen for themselves as a person who does root canals or a person who uh, fucking gives people vasectomies or somebody who like represents, uh, you know, small claims lawsuits or whatever. And so they're just like, I want, I just want to be creative, you know, and they just like the idea of it rather than like the actual drive to want to make something. They just want to be creative people. But because of that, they just severely misunderstand what it even means to that be, was, to that, be creative. That, or, was, that was something that was really shocking to me when I first moved out to LA is I was at a, I was at a party in the Hollywood Hills and uh, I was standing on this little balcony looking out at the city. And it was like literally the f- second week I was in L.A. And, you know, it was a little bit of a culture shock because I was just so surprised that I had actually managed to move here. And I was just kind of like over the moon. I was like, I did it. Like, come hell or high water. I'm not leaving. I'm here. I'm going to do this thing. I had written one really shitty screenplay 
And I was like, I'm going to get, I had landed a job writing commercials. And so I was here and I was like, ah, oh, this is so great. This is so great. And this woman walks up next to me wearing a cowboy hat. And the cowboy hat was such a dumb thing that I started talking to her about the hat. And then I was like, so what do you do? And she was like, oh, I'm a producer. And I'm like, oh, cool. What have you produced? Silence. And she couldn't answer the question. She got really uncomfortable and walked away. And I was like, oh, it was such a disconnect because I'm so used to being in comics where you're defined by the things you've done, not by the things you say you want to do. Yeah. You know, like you're you're the person who did the three issue arc on Batman or you're the person who self-published the, you know, comic about a sentient cardboard box or whatever. And then to be like, oh, I am this thing, but I've never actually done this thing. And I don't really even have the humility to be like, oh, I'm just getting started. But, you know, my friends and I have been doing stuff and I'm really excited or whatever. Like, I'm I'm not being egotistical or hierarchical about it. Like the person could have literally just been like, yeah, I'm not quite there yet. You know, I'm trying to figure it out, you know, trying to network, get some stuff going. That person literally didn't want to be a producer. They just wanted to be able to stand at a party and say, I'm a producer but I was too innocent to know that I shouldn't ask them what they've yeah, done. You, you broke the. I I broke, you broke through the social contract. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We all are. We all know that we're just gonna say just meaningless, empty bullshit, and then the other person is just gonna like give them like platitudes for it. Yep. And you you broke the social contract. Yeah, I fucked up. I was honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, uh, our we have a new newish neighbors two houses down that like. This house was like completely remodeled, and then they they moved in, and uh, my 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 wife was really excited about. Uh, they, my wife. <laughs> yes, uh, they were having a housewarming party, and my wife was excited to go to it uh, because she just wanted to. Um, you know, she's at home with the kids a lot, so you know she's excited about like meeting people and being able to like meet people that she can like interact with more. Because you know, I from what I am told by her and also reading on the line and you know even when you're at home with kids a lot you can it can become like a very isolating yeah experience even though you're with two people yeah but all tiny people yeah um, full people yeah so she was she was excited about it and then she was also simultaneously excited about it because the the guy the husband um he was a screenwriter and she was like oh like you could meet him and maybe you guys can talk and Maybe he could give you like maybe it would be like a good opportunity for or whatever. She just thought you guys it would, would be friends. Yeah, and you're you're replacing me. Yeah. So this I mean, is, this for, is deep cuts with Jake <laughs> Joe's nobles. Um, and me, it's like you know, I I, I wanted to support that and match the excitement and not be negative about it. But in my mind, I'm just like I don't want to fucking meet anybody or talk to anybody. <laughs> uh, it sounds terrible. Um. But we went over there and I'm just like, okay, cool. So uh, we meet these people and they're perfectly nice and we're talking to them. But I very quickly and, you know, obviously my, my wife, just my wife, my wife. Could not, just didn't know this. She, she hadn't, she doesn't know the, yeah, this, the yeah. nuances of these things. But I'm talking to him and I slowly l- realize that basically like he's not a screenwriter. He is a lawyer. His wife and him are both lawyers and he as I just kind of described, he got that itch to be creative. Itch of like I'm dissatisfied with the thing that I'm doing in my life. I want to be. I want to become a screenwriter. Good for him. And so you know, he basically like dropped everything, stopped practicing, and moved to L.A. to pursue screenwriting. And he's like 
come um, once again perfectly nice not saying that he was bad or i disliked him or anything like that but he definitely came off as like that of that guy who's like in his law firm all of his law buddies were like you're you're funny you're creative and like he's like that of like he he's he thinks that he's like funny and has like hot takes on things but like but they're they're like the uh the midwest version of like um you know the 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 the, the you should be a stand up comedian you're always so funny at parties yeah exactly and i just slowly realized that perfectly nice once again but essentially just a, an unemployed rich guy i mean that describes tony wong pretty well <laughs> except he's a very employed rich guy yeah he's like a borderline juiced in mobster employed rich guy this has been deep cuts i'm dave baker oh, that was it that was all oh i don't know i don't know <laughs> do you have more stuff to say uh no that was uh i think that was yeah no this has been deep cuts i'm dave baker and i'm andrew price please sub the show and you can find me online at www.heydavebaker.com you can find me with a little girl just fucking running me through with a giant machete <laughs> and living afterwards for 900 more issues and also at dapricerights.com. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.